Hey guys, good morning. How are you guys? How'd you sleep? Good. It's always the cold is always good for sleep. All right, I gotta I'm try to not electrocute myself here. Don't do that to me. Ah, oh, there we go. All right. So who knows what this is? It's not a heater. It is, it is a, a bug zapper, that's right. Um, so you might call this a bug zapper. It's called a Dyna Trap is what it says on there. Um, it's, uh, it's not a lamp, but it might give off a little bit of light. Uh, but at the end of the day, what this thing is right here, ultimately, is this is a lie, all right? This uh, device is a lie. It's not a lie to you. It's not a lie to me. It's a lie to mosquitoes. It's okay to lie to mosquitoes because they're the spawn of Satan. So um, it's a lie, right? Because the way that a bug zapper works is it has this kind of UV light in it, and it attracts all kinds of bugs in the night, right? I, I, love, I love coming up here. I love coming up to Hume. I love being in the mountains and being amongst the, the beauty of, of God's creation. Um, and I love it especially in the winter because it's still beautiful, but there's not bugs, uh, if you come up in the summer, you know, you get, you get the, the, the mosquitoes and you get all kinds of, of bugs and things. Sometimes we get these, um, these like, they're called meat bees, these little like biting bee things and they love to hang out um, where you eat food because uh, they love to eat your food and also you and the, it's the worst. Anyway, but the bug zapper um, is a lie to all of those bugs because it gives this light. And there's some theories about exactly why a bug zapper works and exactly why a bug zapper attracts uh, bugs. Um, Some people say that the the light um, looks like an escape for them, right? So, so if a bug is in a place where there, there's a predator and, and they see kind of a, a light, like the light at the end of the tunnel, it's a place that, that they can go and, and be free and it's an escape. A light is an open door. It's a, it's a, it's a route out of their current predicament. So maybe it's, it's the promise of escape. Um, maybe the light is, um, some say that, that bugs will, will navigate by kind of natural lights, so sun, moon, stars, uh, they'll, they'll use those to navigate, and then when they have kind of an artificial UV light like this one, um, it, it confuses their navigation, they fly towards it, and then once they get there, they're like, hey, this isn't the sun, what am I doing, what this isn't, these aren't the stars, what am I doing, and they just kind of start circling around it, right? Um, we don't know exactly what it is. Others say that the, the UV light that's given off uh, is similar to like flowers, and so it actually tricks them into thinking that it's a meal. All right, so, but what the bug does not think is that this is something that's going to bring them death, right? They might think that it's an escape. They might think that it's a, a, a direction, a goal, a place to go. They might think that it's a a meal, something to satisfy. It promises all of those things, but ultimately what it gives them in reality is death. And if you want proof, there's a bunch of proof right down here. Um, It's actually really gross. I'm not going to, I'll just dump it out so you can all see it. I'm not going to do that. Um, So it offers an escape. It offers um, a hope. 
It offers a meal. It offers satisfaction. But all of those things are a lie. It gives none of them. What it actually gives is death. But it's okay to lie to bucks. So, um, it delivers death. Yesterday, we talked or began talking about Solomon's search for meaning under the sun. We started... In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we began talking about Solomon's search for meaning under the sun. And what we saw, in short, is that his conclusion of all the things under the sun, all the things of this world, is that if this is all there is, then it's all meaningless. If this is all there is, then it's all pointless. And we talked about the idea that all of us, Solomon included, we were made by God and through God and we were made to God. If you remember last night, what I said is that that to, that is directionality. That means we were made to be oriented in a specific direction, and that is towards God. We were made for a purpose. We were made to seek and to strive after God. We were made as directional people, people with a purpose. And if we don't know what that purpose is, then we will long for it. The deep desire of our hearts will be to find direction and purpose and meaning. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon talks about this idea when he says that God has written eternity on the hearts of mankind. That all of us deep down have this sense that we are made for something. That there is a reason, there must be a meaning and a purpose to our existence. But if we don't know our creator, the one whom we were made by and for and to, if we don't know him, then we're going to spend our lives longing for that Purpose and brings up this problem of purposelessness in life under the sun. But that sense of purposelessness, that sense of meaninglessness, that's not our only problem as human beings. In fact, it's not even our greatest problem. If we don't have our purpose in the God who made us, if we don't have our our direction pointed towards him, then we have this sense of purposelessness, but that sense of purposelessness leads to an even greater problem because if if we haven't found purpose in God, then we begin to seek it anywhere and everywhere else. I was over at a friend's house um, just a few weeks ago uh, for their son's birthday party, and uh, so the, my, my son is in class at school with him, in kindergarten with him, and it was his sixth birthday party, and we were over, and all the boys, it was, I mean, it was wild. There were like, I think, 10 or 12 kindergarten-aged boys with face paint and Nerf guns, okay? It was crazy. And uh, we were in their backyard, and the boys were running wild, and they were shooting each other and uh, dinosaur balloons. It was awesome. Uh, Anyway, dinosaur hunting birthday party. Would recommend. Um, 
And we're in their backyard, and I'm looking around, and his backyard is like, it's like Fort Knox, right? Like, it is, you're not getting out of this thing. And I was like, hey, is, does Gage, like, run away? Like, why is the, he goes, no, we have, we have puppies. Uh, we, we got them, they're, they're almost a year old, but we, we got to make sure they don't get out because they're bloodhounds. Now, if you, bloodhound puppies, they're, they're ridiculously cute, right? But bloodhounds are dogs that were bred for a purpose. Bloodhounds are dogs that were bred for a, made for a very specific purpose, and the purpose of a bloodhound is what? It's to track. Bloodhounds have, like, incredible noses, right? They're like, they have these superhuman sense of smell, and they have it kind of hardwired into their brain to track down a scent, right? So, like, you know, there's the, the classic, like, old cartoons and things where a dog would like, you know, smell the shoe and then like find the person who that shoe belongs to. That's, that's what bloodhounds are made to do. They're made to, to find a scent, to, to lock onto it and to go and to find that source. But if you have a bloodhound, especially a puppy, one that you, you haven't had time to, to train yet, and it has that, that sense of directionality that it was made for something, made to seek something, made to, to strive after something. It has that hardwired into who it is, into what it is. And it's in your backyard. You know what's in your backyard as well? A whole lot of smells. And that bloodhound puppy is likely to latch on to one of those smells and to follow it. Right? Because if it's not given direction, if it's not given purpose, if it's not pointed at a task, then it's going to find one, and it's going to seek it, and it's going to strive after it, and it's going to dig under your fence, and it's going to run out into the street, and it's going to find that scent. Well, that can be dangerous, because your puppy doesn't know how a stoplight works. Right? And so my friend had to make sure that his dogs couldn't get out of his yard following a smell. So you and I, we're, we're not all that different. A bloodhound was made for a purpose. We're, we're made for a purpose. But when we don't find that purpose where we ought to, when we don't find it in our creator, then we're searching it, searching it out anywhere and everywhere. If we don't live our lives to God, then we live them to something else. We live them oriented after something else. We live them striving after something else, seeking after something else. We're not going to live our lives standing still. We're going to live them in the service of something, finding our purpose in something. So the question is, what is that something? What's that thing that we're seeking after? What's that thing that we are striving after? What's that thing where we are seeking to find purpose and fulfillment and meaning and direction. Well, Solomon talks about this in chapter 2. So yesterday, as we were reading through chapter 1, we saw kind of the, the vanity of all these things. He gets specific in chapter 2. And he talks about his search for meaning in the things of this world. His search for fulfillment, for purpose, for happiness in the things of this world. And I want to read to you Ecclesiastes 2. We're going to read 1 through 12. 
and see Solomon's account of this search for purpose, this search for direction, of living his life to all of these other things. This is what he says. I said in my heart, come now, and I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, and behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? And I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine. And my heart still guided me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during their few days of their life. And I made great works and I built houses and planted vineyards for myself and I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees and I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees and I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house and I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem and I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces I got singers both men and women and many concubines the delight of the sons of men So I became great and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem and also my wisdom remained with me and whatever my eyes desired, listen to this, this is key, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil and this was my reward for my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So in Solomon's search for meaning, for purpose, for happiness, for fulfillment, he gives himself over to every desire of his flesh, every lust, everything that he might even have a whim of wanting. He gives himself over to all of it, holds nothing back from himself. He throws himself into the pursuit of entertainment. Gave myself over to pleasure, to, to, to laughter. He says, but it was empty. Pursues entertainment. He pursues alcohol. Right? He says, I, I filled myself, I drank the wine, and it's, it's empty. Talks about his accomplishments, right? When, when just entertaining and, and, and drowning his, his concern in, in food and drink, when that doesn't provide meaning, when that doesn't provide purpose, when that doesn't provide lasting fulfillment, what does he do? He turns to doing these great works. He says, I, I, I built houses, and I, and I made parks and pools, and, and I... I built this incredible kingdom, this incredible empire, and yet it was empty. He found no fulfillment in entertainment, in alcohol, in accomplishments. He goes on and he talks about his his riches, riches that drive him to to buy male and female slaves, but also to to fill his treasuries with the gold and silver of many kings. I I pursued riches and it was empty. He talks about pursuing sex. He said, I had all these concubines, 
the delight of the sons of men, all these beautiful women, all to myself, and it was empty. Even his knowledge was empty. All of it was empty. He pursued all of these things, looking for, for purpose, for meaning, for fulfillment. And all of it was empty. We do the same, don't we? We look all over the place. We look for all of these different things to give us a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, or even just to numb our sense of purposelessness. So we we fill our lives with the same kinds of things that Solomon did, the pursuit of material possessions, the pursuit of, of... of sex, the pursuit of, of, of alcohol or, or drugs, things to, to numb this sense of meaningless that we might be struggling with. We search for any of these things. But Solomon's saying, look, I've done it all, I've had it all, and none of it has lasting value. It's all meaningless, it's all a breath in the wind, it's all vanity. But here's the reality. It's not just empty. This pursuit of Solomon's, this pursuit of all of these different things, it's not just purposeless. It's not just empty. It's not just unsatisfying. See, Solomon's pursuit of his own self-indulgence was sin. And its consequence, Scripture tells us, is death. His pursuit of entertainment and alcohol and accomplishments and riches and sex and knowledge, it was not just empty and fruitless. It was not just pointless. It was sinful. And the consequence of that sin is death. Now, I know what you're saying. I know what you're thinking. Wait a second. Not all those things that... I just listed are inherently sinful, are they? I mean, many of you, most of you, probably know what the Bible says about, say, sexual immorality. You know that, that the scriptures, that God word, God's word says that um, sexual immorality is sinful, or that drunkenness is sinful. Well, what about some of those other things that, that Solomon talked about? Is entertainment Sinful? Is laughter sinful? Accomplishing great works, is, is that sinful? Attaining riches, is that, is that sinful? Well, the answer is no. N- not all of those things that were listed are inherently sinful on their own, but the issue is that Solomon wasn't just seeking those things In the service of God, the issue was that he was seeking them as his primary desire. It's a question of ultimates. It's a question of ultimates. What is your ultimate desire? What was Solomon's ultimate desire? What's his deepest love? What is it that he is living his life striving after? That he is directed towards. 
See, we were created by God and for God and to God. We were created to seek after God, to strive after God as the primary focus of our lives. That's what we were made for. And if our lives are lived in the service of anything else, whether that thing is is good or bad, if our lives are lived in the service to anything other than God, then we're like a bug flying towards the zapper. Because whatever that thing is, If it's not God, if it's not the the thing that we were made for, the one that we were made for, then it is a lie. If entertainment is the thing that is promising us fulfillment, hope, happiness, if, if that's what we look for and we live our lives in the service of that thing, What we've done is we've taken the place in our lives and our hearts where God belongs and we've substituted him for something else. Scripture calls that idolatry. It's worshiping something other than the God that we were made to worship. And entertainment might make all of these promises. It's going to bring us happiness. It's going to to make our lives easier. And in the very, very short term, that might be the case, right? If we're going through a hard time, then it it might dull that hard time to just lose ourselves to some form of entertainment, video games, movies, music, social media, whatever it is. But ultimately, in the long-term accounting of things, all this is going to bring in this life is emptiness, And ultimately, if we set this up as our highest goal, as our greatest good, as our deepest love, as the thing that we are oriented to, then what it will bring is death. What it will bring is death. We've been promised something that is a lie, and its end is death. We call that sin. We call that sin. When we take anything else and we put it in the place of God and we live our lives as sacrifice to that thing instead of to our creator, Scripture refers to that idea as sin. So what is sin? What does sin look like? Where does sin come from? I'll give you three points on this in terms of what sin is and and where it comes from. Starts... With this, sin is driven by our desires. Sin is driven by our desires. Sometimes when we talk about sin, people think about sin as this thing that kind of exists outside of them, right? That, that, that sin is, is something that, you know, the devil made me do it. But the reality in Scripture is overwhelmingly sin is pictured as something that comes from inside our own hearts, In James chapter 1, James gives us kind of a a picture of how sin develops in the heart of mankind. He says, let no man say that when he is tempted, he is tempted by God. For God tempts no one, but each person is tempted 
when they are led away by their own desires. He says they're lured and enticed, right? That's what this light does for a bug. It lures them. It entices them. Each person sins when they are lured and enticed by their own desire. The things that your heart wants, the things that you want, that you desire, you are lured in by those things. And then it says, desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin. What does that mean? It means when you let that desire for something, whatever that thing is, whether that thing is inherently sinful or not, when you let your desire for something grow and grow and grow, until your desire for that thing eclipses your desire to know and to love and to honor and to serve God, then that desire gives birth to sin. Jesus himself talks about this in Matthew, or sorry, Mark chapter 7, in 7.21, Jesus says this, For from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality and theft and murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evils come from within and they defile a person. See, sinful desire is in every one of our hearts. And when we see something that we want and we let that desire grow and grow and grow until that desire eclipses our desire to know and to love and to serve the God who we were made by and through and to, then that desire gives birth to sin. John Calvin, famous theologian, um, at the time of the Reformation, he he says it like this. He says that the human heart is a factory of idols. Our heart, our desires on their own make idols for us out of anything and everything. I know some of you have probably been at a camp that I've spoken at before, and chances are you've heard me tell the story of my little seven-year-old heart um, being a factory of idols uh, one Christmas when I was a kid. Um, I, I love Christmas. I love Christmas candy. Uh, it's great having kids because I can steal their Christmas candy and they don't even know it. Um, it's maybe a bad way to lead into this story, but anyway, here we are. Um, one of my favorite things at Christmas is a Reese's chocolate treat, right? Reese's chocolate tree, it's great. Reese's are great, but the seasonal Reese's, the tree, the egg, they're so much better than the regular ones because like the chocolate is a little bit different. The peanut butter, I don't know, it's different. And when I was a kid, um, I would always, I was the one who would eat all of my Christmas candy like the morning of, right? I would get my stocking out and I would just like plow through everything. My sister, she's two years older than me, she was always the opposite. She was very, like, she would slowly eat her candy. She would keep it. She would eat it, like, one piece a day over the course of months. And, um, and I remember one Christmas, I think I was seven, and I'd eaten all of my Christmas candy, but my sister hadn't eaten, like, any of hers. And I remember waking up every morning and seeing her, she had a shoebox that she kept her candy in. It was next to her bed in her room. And, and every morning I would wake up and I would 
walk past a room, the door was open, and I would see that box of candy. And I knew that in that box of candy, there was a Reese's chocolate treat. And I knew what was right, and I knew what was wrong. I knew that was my sister's candy, and I shouldn't take it, right? But my heart longed for that Reese's chocolate treat. And the first day, I had no problem walking by and saying, no, that, that belongs to sis, that's not mine. I'm going to let her, I'm not going to take her candy. But every day, that desire for that peanut buttery, chocolatey goodness grew just a little bit more. And I allowed that desire to grow and to grow and to grow until eventually that desire became the greatest desire of my heart. I wanted that Reese's chocolate tree more than I wanted anything in this life, right? And so what did I do? I walked into my sister's room, I took her candy, I stole it, and I ate it. That's what sin is. You see, in that moment, in my little seven-year-old heart, what I had done is I had taken this Reese's chocolate tree and I had elevated it to the point, the place in my life where God belonged. How? I let it become the thing that I wanted more than anything. I let it become the thing that I desired above all else. And I just knew that if I ate that Reese's chocolate tree, then I would be happy. My life would have purpose and meaning and fulfillment. Now, I might not have said those things or thought those things even clearly in my mind, but ultimately, that's what I'm doing. Because in going and taking that candy from my sister, I'm taking something and I'm saying that getting this candy is more important than obeying the God who made me. Getting this candy is more important than loving and serving and honoring and following God. And so I've taken this treat and I've elevated it to this point of seeking fulfillment and purpose and happiness in some refined sugars. And you guys do the same exact thing. And I know you do, because I do the same exact thing. I still do. It's not usually with candy now, but it's with all kinds of other things. For some of you, maybe that thing is, uh, maybe that thing is your academics. It's the most important thing in the world to you. You care so much about your, your GPA. You're on the track to be valedictorian. You will not let anything put you off of that track. And so you'll do anything to get there. You'll spend all of your time studying. You'll say, I can't go to, to church tonight. I have to study. I, I, can't, I can't be in youth group. I can't open my Bible. I don't have time. I've got, I've got to study so that I can get the grade. For a lot of you, I'm willing to bet it's sports. That's the thing that you set up as the highest good in your life, and you serve that above everything else. For some of you, it's pleasure. It's how you feel in the moment. And you know what God says about things like, like alcohol, things like sex outside of marriage. You, you know what God says about those things. And maybe at some level you want to serve God. But what you want more, what you desire more is that, that moment of pleasure, that, that thing that isn't God. And why? Because at some level, you think, if I do this, if I seek after this, 
then I will feel loved. I'll feel like I have purpose. I'll feel like I have meaning. And you seek that in all of these other things. It comes from our own desires. The desires of our heart that we allow to grow until they become our primary desire, our ultimate desire, eclipse our desire for God, and then our desire gives birth to sin. So why do our desires drive us to sin? If we know, and I know that many of you are in this place where you know intellectually this is wrong and I shouldn't do it, but still you find yourself falling back into those sins over and over again. So why is that? It's because our sin is deceitful. Sin is driven by our desires and sin is deeply deceptive. That's point two. Sin is deeply deceptive. Hebrews chapter three says it like this. It says that we should exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Why? So that none of us may be hardened to the deceitfulness of sin. In Jeremiah 17, it says it this way, the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. You see, sin makes a promise to us. Sin promises purpose. It promises hope. It promises an escape from pain. And in some ways, temporarily, that might be the case. Temporarily, it might feel really good to do that thing that we know we ought not to do. That's what Solomon talked about. I sought all of these things, he said. And temporarily, we might get some pleasure from our sin. If we didn't, we wouldn't do it. But that pleasure is brief. It is a, a fleeting moment, and the reality of what sin offers us is the opposite. Sin promises fulfillment, but what it brings ultimately is emptiness. It promises purpose, but where it takes us is into a life of purposelessness. It promises hope, but ultimately it lands us in despair. It promises an escape from the pain and the difficulty of our lives, but ultimately it only increases, amplifies, multiplies that pain in our lives and in our relationships. And even beyond that, ultimately sin makes us worthy of punishment from a righteous and holy and just God. You see, in the temporal sense, in the under the sun sense, sin offers one thing and gives us nothing. It offers purpose, but it has no real purpose to give us. It offers us hope, but it has no real hope to give us. That's all in the temporal sense. But there's an even greater, heavier, weightier consequence to sin that isn't just temporal. It isn't just under the sun. It isn't just how sin wrecks our lives in the here and now, because sin has eternal effects on us. Sin makes shipwreck of our lives. If we spend our lives seeking after all the things of this world, we will find ourselves, maybe with full bank accounts, but 
utterly despondent. We will find ourselves with a long list of accomplishments, an impressive resume, but no sense of purpose. That's what sin offers us in this world. But in the next, the offer of sin, what sin genuinely gives us, is so much heavier because sin makes shipwrecks of our lives, but also of our eternity. In James 1, right, it says that desire when it has conceived, brings forth sin. And then it says, sin, when it is fully formed, brings death. Romans 6.23 puts it like this, the wages of sin is death. What does that mean? It means that every one of us who sins are deserving of the righteous wrath of a holy God. We are deserving of death. Why? Why does a silly thing like me stealing my sister's Christmas candy, why is that deserving of eternal death and punishment? Because in that moment, I was doing more than stealing a small little candy. In that moment, I was committing cosmic treason against the king of the universe. I was taking the God who had made me by his power, through his will, to serve him. I was taking that God and I was supplanting him. I was kicking him off of his throne and I was putting a Reese's chocolate tree where he belonged. I was committing cosmic treason against the king of the universe. And you know what? You do the same thing. You take God from the throne in your life, in your heart, where he rightly belongs, and you kick him off that throne, you supplant him, and you put sex, or porn, or material possessions, or football, or academics, or friendships, or fill in the blank with anything else. You put that on his throne, the throne of your life, the throne where he belongs. You set it up as your highest and greatest good, your deepest desire, your deepest love. You've committed treason against the king of the universe. And scripture tells us that we all have done this. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us has committed this cosmic treason. And the result is not just a life of meaninglessness. It's not just purposelessness. It's not just existential dread, though that would be enough. No, the result is the wrath of a righteous and holy and just God. The result is punishment. The result is death. The result is hell. That's what we've earned by our sin. By seeking after our desires. By going for whatever our our flesh tells us to, to strive after. Instead of God, we have earned for ourselves the wrath of God. Every single one of us has. We've bought the lie of sin that it has something greater to offer us. And eventually, we've earned the zap.
So Solomon set up for us two big problems. The two big problems of mankind. The first one is the problem of meaning. The problem of purposelessness. That if what we see and feel and touch in this world is all there is, then there's no point to any of it. The second problem, the deeper problem, is that in our pursuit of meaning in everything other than God, we have set ourselves up condemned before a righteous and holy king. And we deserve his wrath. We have the problem of meaninglessness and we have the problem of guilt. But that same God who made us, who knows us, who loves us, who made us by and through and to himself, he cares enough for us to provide a solution, not just to the first problem of meaninglessness, but also to the second, the problem of guilt before a righteous king. Quote Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, are what we deserve for sin, the payment for our sin is death. But the second half of that verse says this, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. In 1 John 2, 15 through 17, John says it like this. He says, do not love the world. That's the things under the sun. That's everything else in the world. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Listen to this. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. We have the problem of a life searching for purpose. The problem of a sense of meaninglessness. We also have the problem of guilt before God because we have sought purpose in everything but him. But our loving and merciful and gracious God provides for us a way that we might have purpose and meaning in this life and that we might have joy and eternal happiness in the next as he pays for our guilt and brings us to himself. We're going to talk about that tonight. We're going to talk about how God gives us purpose, gives us meaning, and saves us from the guilt of our sin tonight. But this morning, the question I want to leave you with is this. What are you living your life to? What's the thing in your life that you are tempted to elevate to the place of God? Your highest love, your deepest desire, the place that you search for meaning and hope. What is that thing? What's the thing you're tempted to put on the throne of the Lord in your life? Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. 
God, even as we talk about this idea of sin, um, it's not fun to think about. It's not fun to, to do the introspection to see, God, what it is that we are tempted to make an idol out of, what we are tempted to, to worship in your place. All the places that we look for our purpose and for our meaning other than you. But God, I pray that you would just help us to, to commit ourselves um, to pondering that question today. As we go about our day, as we prepare for chapel tonight, God, I pray that you would just lay something on our hearts, what, what the thing is that we are seeking to supplant you with. God, I pray that you would just grow our desire for you over and above our desire for anything and everything else. That we might find purpose and meaning and fulfillment in this life that we might find hope and joy and happiness in the next. Father, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.